Hello, photography lovers, and welcome to another episode of the Fashion Photography Podcast with me, your host, Virginia. This is the one and only place you can find everything you want and everything you need to know about the fashion photography business. And today, it's time for part two of our episode with the gorgeous lady of YouTube, Anita Sadowska. In today's episode, we talk about what's the best thing about working and living in Bali. And she can definitely tell us a lot about this because even right now, at this very moment, while you're listening to the podcast, she is in Bali. Another question that you're probably asking yourself is how to find different teams when you're constantly traveling. And she has the answers. You know what else she can help you with? How to find the best possible girls from a modeling agency when you're in a new country. In other words, how to stand up for what you deserve. We have prepared for you also the perfect recipe for swimwear photo shoot. And I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for today's episode. So let's just get to it. You're definitely traveling a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember last year you were about to move to Bali. Yeah, so my plan at the moment is to avoid winter. <laughs> That's my main goal in life. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I knew for years that I didn't want to be in Ireland. And I knew that I definitely didn't want to go to Poland either. I guess I've had this issue with identity for my entire life where I've never really felt at home anywhere in particular, you know, I could be in any country in the world and I'd feel the same. I never really feel at home in Poland anymore because I left when I was so young. Never really felt at home in Ireland because of the, I, I don't know, I feel like Irish people and Polish people are quite different in character and it's just kind of hard to connect with them, I guess. The best connections I had was with South African people because I feel like they're a lot like uh, Polish people. I also love Australians and I get along with them pretty well. So I guess it depends. I've been looking for my own place and for a place to not necessarily settle. I have no will to settle right now. I don't have kids. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have anything that is holding me back in any particular country. And I feel like the world is so big. Why would you want to settle in one place? So last year, at the beginning of the year, I went to Cape Town for three months, which was absolutely amazing. I loved it. The only problem I had with Cape Town was the fact that, unfortunately, it is it is quite unsafe and if you are, especially like a solo female traveler, having the issue of safety is a big one. And I had a lot of models be mugged and attacked. Of course, it's not like that everywhere, but it is a much bigger risk than living somewhere else. And then I went to Bali and it was supposed to be three months at the, at the beginning. But then certain things happened in my life and I really wanted to come back. So I was supposed to be there October until December. December, I flew home for Christmas to Ireland. And then the minute I landed in Dublin, I bought myself a ticket back to Bali a week later. <laughs> and I flew back and I stayed there until pretty much May. And then me and my boyfriend, we wanted to go to Europe to go around and, and see things and, and whatnot. So being in Bali is amazing. And I want to spend a lot of my time there. And I want it to be my base because it's so close to Australia and so close to Asia. But because Bali is such a small island, it's very disconnected from real world. You don't have cities. It's a very specific kind of vibe. And I feel like when you're there for a bit too long, it might affect you in a bit more of a negative way because living in Bali is really cheap. You basically live somewhere for around 300 euro a month. You drive a scooter that costs you nothing. It's probably maybe around 100 euro a month. 
you have a cleaner come in and clean your clothes and the room and you eat out two or three times a day because the food is so cheap. It's just, it's not really real world and it's very easy to get detached from your goals and your plans because you just become a bit too comfortable. And, and I find like going back to big cities and putting myself back into this, maybe not hustle mode because I don't really do that that much, but it's just more going back into, let's say, civilization where there's streets and big cities and cars and shops and, and there's so much more happening around you. It's a good kind of a culture shock almost to kind of keep you keep you grounded. What about all these traveling and finding the right teams? And especially when we talk about Bali, where everything is so small. I find actually places like Bali are quite good because, again, like within, like with Ireland, all you need to do is do one good shoot and then people message you and they want to work with you. And Bali is a mainly Instagram-based place. You do have two agencies that are there, but to be honest, the majority of my models that I would get, I would get through Instagram. So I would either message them or they would message me because they see that I'm in Bali. But I think always, anytime I go into a new industry, even now when I was in Berlin and now in Lisbon, I feel the most important thing you can do for yourself is just to get that reference point where people know that you're in that country for now. So for example, If I was in Berlin, the first thing I would do I was tr would be to try and organize a shoot and push it out as soon as possible. Because as soon as people see that you're in their city or in a given city, they'll be like, oh, I want to work with you and so on. And a lot of the time I made a mistake where I would be in the city and I would only work with somebody towards the very end of my stay. And then I would get messages for three or four months after being like, hey, are you in X, Y, and Z? Because I'm there now. And I'm like, no, I'm not anymore. So I feel like once you have one shoot that you do it's the same with starting with new agencies or new industries you always have to have this reference point because if you go into an agency and you could have the most amazing portfolio they don't really know who you are and how you take photos because you haven't really worked with them before but i feel like once you do a shoot with them and they like what they see they will be way more inclined to give you better models and better creatives or whoever they represent Because once they see that they, the work is good and they see it on their own model, they're way more trusting towards you. Do you usually reach out to them via email? For agencies, yes. I think the easiest way is to just send an email. I usually send them. Nowadays, I just say I'm going to be in, let's say, Lisbon or Berlin. And I do photo shoots that I film for my YouTube channel. You know, I do have to mention it because I don't want there to be any problems with the fact that I'm filming. Mm-hmm. Because I want them to know that it's going to be happening because that is the main point of organizing the photo shoot. So I just say, I have my YouTube channel. This is an example of a video that you can expect. This is the photos that I take. And I usually send them to my Instagram. Most people reply. Some people, I would have replies from few agencies that would be like, oh, sorry, you're not a good match or something. I do realize that my work is not necessarily the most high fashion. I am a bit more commercial and not all agencies want that for their models. But I just see who's available who I can work with, if there's anybody that I'm excited about. Because the problem I, I feel like starting with new industries is that they always try and squeeze in the newest and newest faces possible for you to shoot. And because you haven't worked with them before, you have very little leverage to be like, no, sorry, I won't do it because, you know, the girl is young or something. And that's what I've been struggling with a lot, just trying to put my feet down and be like, sorry, I won't shoot with this girl because she's way too young. And if I was to shoot with somebody like that, I'd have to get paid because collaborations only make sense if it does do something for your book. But if the model is a complete beginner, 
it's her first time doing a photo shoot and you have a big portfolio already, then it's kind of an unfair situation where if you don't get good images for your portfolio, you should at least get paid. So I've usually been pretty good in negotiating, you know, maybe if, if a model agency sends me a bunch of girls that I don't necessarily like, I would maybe go to their website and be like, oh, those girls are great, but they are a bit too young because sometimes they literally send you 14 year olds and you're like, what am I supposed to yeah. do with this? The girl's too young. So I usually would go to their page and maybe find two or three girls that I like and be like, oh, how about this girl or this girl? Or is there anybody more similar to this kind of look? Because this is what I'm looking for. Seven out of 10 times, the model agency will give you a better option. It's just usually you have to know that they will push the newest faces at the very beginning. And then you have to keep negotiating with them to give you better models. It's very important also for you to have older models because in most of your videos, the girls look really sexy. And to do this with a 14 years old, ah. Yeah, it's, it's not right. And a lot of the time I shoot stuff that is relatively revealing, like swimwear and so on. And I feel like putting a young girl in this kind of position is uncomfortable. Yeah. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for them. Plus, it's just easier to be working with girls that have experience because they know how to move and how to put their bodies in a certain way, especially when it comes to swimwear. I find the best models for swimwear are the girls that are maybe a bit more curvy and that are a bit more aware of their body. And they need to be quite a sexual being to, to, to start with, because if a girl is super skinny, doesn't have any curves, is very uncomfortable with her body, then... The photos are just not going to look great. They're just going to look very awkward and forced and you don't really want that. Do you remember the best posing model that you work with? I remember the best model I worked with for swimwear was actually, funny story, she was actually 16. She was very young and it was in South Africa. and She was so beautiful and she exercises and she has this beautiful athletic body, but she has those amazing curves as well. And she was moving so well and I loved the photos so much. But I remember my videographer at the time, he knew how old she was and he was in his mid-30s. And when he had to film, anytime she would do anything remotely and <laughs> a bit more sexual, he would just turn the camera away. So I just ended up with a bunch of behind the scenes of just the camera rolling the other way. <laughs> so I had to depend on my B-roll there. But yeah, she was really good. And it's kind of the same like with photography. You know when somebody has the natural ability to take photos or the natural ability to pose. There is a lot of models and there is a lot of girls that have beautiful faces and beautiful bodies, but they just don't know what to do with themselves. And then you just have this full package where a girl looks beautiful, she's super natural, she doesn't need a lick of makeup, perfect skin, perfect body, she maintains it well, you know, she eats well, and you can just see that she's really healthy. And that's, that's what's so special about some models. But sometimes it's just about the vibe. Sometimes it's just about you vibing with a certain model. Like I've had so many situations where I would work with girls that I would have booked because maybe there was, you know, a lack of other options. And I would absolutely adore working with them. And then there were girls that were absolutely amazing in their portfolio. And then you work with them and you just can't get that connection with. So I feel like it's a lot of how you personally interact with that model and what kind of traction you have on the shoot, because sometimes you can have the best creatives and the best people to work with, but sometimes you just don't work together. And, and that's fine. It's just the way it is. It's kind of like with relationships. You can go on 7,000 dates and there might be nothing wrong with that person, but you just don't click with them in a certain way. And sometimes you just meet somebody and you instantly know that they're your kind of people and, and, and that's it. <laughs> 
I love this because it can also be a great advice for the models that are listening to us. Mm -hmm. We don't have just photographers. So I think it's going to be good for them to hear what's going on behind the camera. <laughs> for sure. I mean, sometimes I see certain photographers working with certain models over and over. And I understand that because they just work really, really well together. And sometimes, as I said, I've worked with models that I would be super excited about. And I worked with them and there was just nothing for me. And I saw other people working with them and the images would be incredible. And, it, and I knew it wasn't my fault and I knew it wasn't the model's fault. Sometimes the chemistry is just not right. And sometimes you just have to find the creative that captures you or your model that you can, you know, capture in the best light. And what about the teams that you work with? Uh, because as you mentioned, sometimes you don't know the people in your team. Do you always meet beforehand or sometimes you just meet at the day of the shoot? I barely ever meet people that I work with beforehand. I always just meet up with them on the day, you know, when I was doing a shoot in Taipei and when I was doing a shoot in Berlin, I would just literally arrange everything over Instagram or through the model agencies and just hope for the best, just hope that everybody will show up on the day and just go there and you just meet everybody. And I usually have that time of maybe an hour, hour and a half when the, when the model is in hair and makeup and that's how you bond with the team. And then you just go out and you just do your thing. Have you ever had a case when someone in the team is just not appearing? It wouldn't be anything recently. Mm -hmm. I can't really remember anything recently like that. But um, oh, there was plenty of situations where the model would cancel last minute and so on, especially models, I find. Models always cancel the most. I feel like when you work with like um, stylists or makeup artists, it's a bit more committed, especially from a styling perspective, because stylists spend days and days on pulling clothes and so on. So usually if they say they're going to be somewhere, they will be there. But I find with models, the biggest problems I had was in London because it's such a big industry and they send them to a lot of tests and a lot of those tests are very average. And I feel like a lot of the girls, especially if they're younger, they get very discouraged and then they just stop caring for in a way. And then the model agency tells them, oh, there's a test, just show up at 7 a.m. in this place. And when I was in London last year for a week, I just had this string of cancellations where I think I had 60 or 70 percent of girls cancel on me. And it was actually very interesting because I was just thinking to myself that if I was a beginner photographer and it was my first trip to London and I would be doing it for the first time, I don't think I would have ever picked up my camera again because it was just so, in a way, soul crushing because you just realize how little and insignificant you are in the industry. Nobody really cares about you per se. But at the same time, I find like this was a good lesson and just a good kick in the bum, I guess, to just do what I do regardless of circumstances. and if. If a shoot is meant to happen, it will happen. And if it's not meant to happen, it's just not going to. And and you just have to move on with that. Because if you were to get discouraged for every closed door that you have in your career, then you won't really get very far being in this industry. Same problem, same city. Absolutely the same experience. Oh, yeah. I, I just think, you know, because they don't tell the models, they just don't know. And they just tell them, oh, there's a test on Saturday at 7 a.m. and I had a situation where I was staying with my friend who is a makeup artist and we were doing all those shoots together and this one place that we went to it was the studio was two hours away by car like it was it was completely the other side of the city and mm -hmm. it took us forever and it was very early call time and I think we had like four or five models because we were doing beauty and usually when you do beauty you just need maybe two or three hours in the day so if you book a studio for a full day you can maybe pump out four or five models in one day so this way you save on studio costs going up and down but basically the first model it was she was supposed to be there nine o'clock in the morning and she messages five past nine and she's like 
oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to show up. I told my agency already, but I thought that I would message you. It was an emergency. And I'm like, I, I just messaged back and I'm like, you knew because the studio was so far. I'm like, you knew at least two hours ago that you weren't going to make it because you weren't leaving your house. Couldn't you just let us know then so we could have arranged something? And she just gave me this long, very snotty answer. And, and you know, it was just it was just very frustrating. But as I said, at the same time, it, it teaches you patience and it teaches you that it's not necessarily about you or your work. It's just the way the industry is and you just have to accept it. It is absolutely true. I had exactly the same situation. We have called our first model at eight o'clock. She did not show up. She did not text. Mm-hmm. Her booker did not text and he did not answer any of our calls. So we had to wait for a whole hour until the second model comes up. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a nightmare, not because of something else, but because the whole team is just sitting mm-hmm. there waiting for you. Exactly. Yeah. The photographer is the one arranging all these things. Exactly. And that was the same thing. The frustrating thing was because she was my our first model, we basically ended up like sitting there for three hours oh doing nothing. God. The studio guy was sitting there. My assistant who was helping me film was there. And it was just such an awkward situation. And then all the other girls came in and then we were rushing through them because we had three or four girls, but we could have just spread the day a bit more different and just did it this way. That's what I'm saying. It's just those kind of situations where you can't really get discouraged. You just have to keep going with your work because This is one thing that I learned about photography and about becoming successful in photography is that if you take any of those kind of situations personally, and if you let them affect you, if you let other people's, especially I feel rejection, rejection is such a big thing in photography and in any creative medium. I think everybody knows the story of Kate Moss, who was rejected from a number of agencies and eventually... She was very stubborn and she kept going to different agencies and eventually she got signed and and then she became one of the biggest models. It is such a cliche story, but at the same time, it really is like that. I've seen so many people get discouraged over the years because they would get constantly rejected and they would have doors closed on their faces. and, And I get it. It's very frustrating and it's very annoying. But I feel like, again, it's just about taking what you can out of it and just drawing your own conclusions and just pushing regardless of what people say because I feel like if you believe in yourself enough you will succeed one way or the other you just have to work hard on it be creative and just be very patient with it because it does take time and and effort and it's not just something that happens overnight you work on it consistently for years and then eventually you get somewhere I'm not sure where but somewhere (laughs) (laughs) it's a tough industry that's absolutely true and it's not just the rejection there are a lot of things in the way And for example, we can talk about creative blocks a little bit because this is something that many people experience. What about you? Do you have times like that? Because judging by your YouTube channel, you're full of ideas all the time. Is it the reality? It couldn't be further from reality. The thing is, right, I usually get inspired when I do my shoots. I usually see certain topics that I can talk about and I just go with it. But a lot of the time I have a certain scheme of ways, the the way things work. But I do get creative blocks a lot. And obviously it depends on whatever is happening in my life as well, what the situation is financially. Because funny enough, I've been actually working on on a creative block video this week and I'm going to be pushing it out soon. I've been cooking in this sauce for the last two weeks where I've been kind of thinking a lot about having a creative block and how to overcome it and what it is and all this kind of stuff. And 
there's so many different elements that affect you having a creative block. I feel like when I started with photography, my biggest creative block was the fact that I was so heavily dependent on it on money. And I didn't really have the choice of saying no to jobs. And I would literally take any job that came my way that underpaid me dramatically. And I would kill myself, break my back. I would edit ridiculous amount of photos or take a ridiculous amount of photos, edit them, and then have to give them to the client. And then I wouldn't have any time for myself to create any of my own projects. And you just become this money-making machine that it's not even good money. That's the, that's the biggest problem. That's the frustrating part that it's not really like you have a lot of money that you can just spend left, right, and center. You literally make enough to survive and you kill yourself and you don't have time for anything. And you just become so frustrated and closed off in the circle of, I don't like what I'm producing. I'm producing the same stuff all the time. I'm not really happy with it. I hate editing it. I hate working on it. And that's the frustration that kind of comes from, from this kind of situation. Other times when I have creative blocks, it was usually because maybe I got a bit too comfortable in shooting in a certain style. And I've been a bit too comfortable for a bit too long shooting what I shoot. I've had a similar way of shooting my images and I see even you know this is similar kind of poses that I do for models and similar surroundings you know maybe being in Bali for a bit too long and shooting the same kind of swimwear and, and it just became kind of boring in a way I'm the kind of person that has to constantly improve otherwise my brain is going to get very frustrated with me and I'll get very worked up if I don't make progress like visible progress in my photos so that's when I start slipping into this kind of rut of not wanting to take photos and a lot of the time also, I don't really like retouching. I never really liked retouching. And now I particularly don't like retouching, especially now after I started working with way better retouchers than myself. It's very hard to go back into retouching photos myself because I see all my flaws and I see how much time and effort takes me and the results are not particularly great. So I way prefer to just do my photo shoots and then send them off to retouchers and have that part sorted because this way it frees up my headspace to plan more shoots and do stuff that I actually enjoy doing instead of spending time on things that I don't really like. That's a bit, big part of overcoming a creative block is just taking away the parts of the process, whatever it is, planning or obviously not the shooting, but planning or editing or whatever it is, just taking it away from yourself so you clear out more headspace to do the stuff that you actually enjoy doing. I also find it's very important to maybe look at new inspiration, maybe stuff that is a bit different to your usual style, you know, going on Pinterest or looking at Instagram accounts that you like, maybe seeing work that is different from yours and trying something different. I'm not saying you're not going to fall on your face, it's not going to backfire because the chances it might not work out and you might hate the photos. It's kind of like with a relationship when you're dating, you do have to kind of keep things a bit more exciting and you can't go into the same restaurant every single night. It's the same with food. If you eat bread every single day, you will eventually get sick of bread. But if you mix it up a bit, have a little bit of something different, maybe a porridge in the morning and then bread <laughs> keeps the bread exciting. <laughs> and that's the best way to describe it. So I think at the moment, I'm just kind of overcoming the creative block. I've had a lot of projects that have been sitting on my shoulders as well, which been, I've been really stressed about. But I spoke to my retoucher and basically just dumped all the photos onto her. So I don't have to worry about it. And I feel so much better. already. <laughs> Do you want to give her a shout out? It's Veronica. I work with her most of my beauty projects. Her account is MV Retouching. She's absolutely incredible. Maybe I shouldn't because then she's going to become too busy and she won't have time for my stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> we hope this is not going to happen. You guys can find her Instagram account linked also in the show notes. 
where you can find Anita's work and her Instagram account. You were telling me about your retoucher, but you also told me that most of your projects, the ones that you do for your YouTube account, are passion projects. They're for you. Mm -hmm. What about the financial part with the retoucher? Well, that's the thing. A lot of the time, it's kind of like with everybody else, like working on passion projects with stylists and with all the other people. If you have a certain standard of work, you have a lot of talented young people that are willing to work with you for your portfolio or for their portfolio. There's lots of starting out retouchers that are really, really good that are still way better than I am because they do it full time and they feel very passionate about it. So usually I would collaborate with them and just link them back the same way I would do with stylists and everybody else. I always work on basis of where either everybody gets paid or nobody gets paid. If I work on a passion project and I get models and stylists and everybody else for free, I don't feel bad for getting retouchers for free as well. If they are the ones usually approaching me and, you know, asking for work, let's put it out there. I never really approach people and be like, hey, will you work for me for free? I usually just get requests from people being like, oh, if you ever have any photos for retouching, please send them my way. And I'm like, sure, no problem. And this way we mutually benefit because they get photos in their portfolio that they want and I get photos that I don't need to retouch, which is great. Yeah. A lot of the time, if I can't scrape any budget aside or if I get any kind of money, I will obviously try and pay my retoucher. As I said, whenever I can, I'm trying to be fair and pay my team. But it is difficult because a lot of the time, as I said, everything is self-funded. And when you organize shoots and you have to pay for the studio and pay for X, Y, and Z, it's very hard. The thing is, when you pay creatives, you can't pay them 30 or 50 euros. You have to pay them solid money. If I work with somebody for free and they work for me and their work is strong, is it like assistant or makeup artist, stylist or a retoucher? Whenever I get an opportunity to get them paid work, I will make sure that I will try and do it. So at least I can repay the favor. And as I said, have this community of where we either all get paid or nobody gets paid. Because that's the right thing to do. That's what I believe in. Yeah. You don't like that much retouching. What about your... YouTube channel. Do you do the whole editing by yourself? I've done most of the video editing myself up to maybe the last two months. Recently, I've been working with my video retoucher, um, Jason. He filmed a video or two for me when I was in Bali. He was my assistant. And now I just pay him a consistent flat fee per video to edit something that I can afford in my budget to put in there, but it takes maybe a day or, t or two away of work for me, which is amazing because he understands me very well. He knows what kind of style of video I want and how I edit my videos. We know each other very well in that sense. So it's a lot of pressure off my back because I know, especially if I have any deadlines or anything like that, I don't have to worry about the video aspect. I, I can just send it off to him. He's going to do everything and then I'm going to have a ready, ready to go video so I can keep my deadline because I want to post once a week every Sunday. I know that it's also very important to be very consistent with YouTube. Yes. Is there something that you didn't expect it throughout your experience with YouTube? It's very hard to figure out what people want. And you are dependent on the algorithm a lot. And sometimes I post videos that I don't particularly enjoy and people just love them. And they get all the views and, and everything. And then sometimes I post a video that I'm really proud of and it just gets zero views. And it's just very disheartening because sometimes you just post stuff. You just never know. I'm very happy that my videos get very good views for the amount of followers I have because it's way past the 10% of viewers, which is amazing. 
but at the same time, you just never know. Sometimes you can have a video that will hit a certain mark or, you know, it's going to go very slow. And then all of a sudden somebody shares it somewhere or it gets shown on the YouTube Explore page or something. And it just completely goes up by a massive amount of numbers. And then sometimes it just doesn't go at all. So it's just this game where you never know. And, and it's very frustrating sometimes because you just don't know what to expect. As I said, sometimes you post stuff that you're really, really proud of and then doesn't really perform well, or you just post something that was an afterthought video and it, it gets super well received and it gets all the views and, <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> damn it. It happens. It's the same with the photography projects that we do. Sometimes I'm mm. really, really passionate about something and people are like, yeah, I saw this project. It's really nice, but I love the previous one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's the same. I also find what's interesting is usually if if a photo performs really well on Instagram, it's usually not going to perform as well on YouTube. And if something performs really well on YouTube, it's not going to perform as well on Instagram. There's two completely different platforms. I find YouTube is way more educational and family friendly and it's way more PG, while Instagram is all about the ass and <laughs> the curves and the naked bodies and the more skin you show, the better. But on YouTube, the problem I had with my channel a lot, and that's why I had to kind of change direction a bit, was when I was putting a lot of swimwear up, I would get demonetized a lot. And it's not about being demonetized because my channel doesn't bring a lot of ad revenue. But the problem is once you get demonetized, you get hidden from a certain audience, especially young audience and people that have child block on. And there's a lot of people that have child blocks. So I remember I went to Ikea once and I was on their Wi-Fi and I went into my channel and my channel had four videos on it. Oh, no. Yeah, because basically YouTube just categorizes you in a certain way. And the thing is, as long as you are not really child friendly, you are never going to get the views because they are too afraid of losing their advertisers and all this kind of stuff. So it's so important to keep your videos monetized for that reason and just keep it as PG as possible for YouTube. But as I said, at the same time, those kind of images don't usually work on Instagram. People want to see shiny, naked bodies, basically. <laughs> it's a balance I'm tra still trying to work out and figure out, I guess. Well, I was about to ask you for an advice for Instagram, but I think we just got it. <laughs> In general, yeah, I think people love good, sexy images on Instagram. I think that's what gets you noticed. And beauty, though. I, I find that people react very, very well to natural beauty images. Nothing too crazy. I stopped doing beauty photography where you're very creative and very different because those kind of photos usually perform really poorly on Instagram and on YouTube. Mm -hmm. People want to see stuff that they can possibly recreate themselves that are a bit more kind of everyday images that they can use, that they can promote to the clients. And usually something that's super creative doesn't usually work that well. Well, that's true, but it's also very challenging to keep your portfolio more diverse mm -hmm. when you have to stick to only just one style because the people like it. 100% nowadays, it is all about finding the balance, you know, because I don't really work with clients as much anymore. I work with whatever people want for YouTube. It's keeping this balance, like people become your client and it's like this balance of keeping them happy but also keeping yourself happy and maybe doing what works best for your channel, but also doing some sort of a fun project that you like from time to time, but producing it in a way that people will still enjoy watching it. I did a shoot in Taipei some time ago, and it was this night shoot with loads of neons. And it was one of those things where I didn't know how it was going to be received. And it was one of those things. It got received really, really well on YouTube and 
kind of poorly on Instagram because it wasn't very naked and it wasn't really my usual thing. So I think it's just about, again, seeing what makes you happy, trying to find this happy medium of what makes you happy versus what makes people happy and just kind of going with that. And then if you want to get crazy from time to time, you just do that. But you just accept the fact that it might not be as popular as you would like it to be. You do have a lot of experience with swimwear. Can you share with us what are the top five tips that you can give to photographers when they go on a such shoot? It's actually very funny that you say that because I only started doing swimwear maybe like a year ago. It was pretty new to me. I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> But I think in general, my top tips would be first to definitely work with models that are very body confident and somebody, as I said, who is a bit more curvy. Because I find when you work with girls that are super skinny and they don't really have a lot of curves, it's much, much harder to show the swimmer in the right way. You know, there is a lot of skinny girls that still have good body shape, but if a girl has a very boyish figure and is very tall and skinny, it's going to be very hard to show the swimmer in, in a desirable kind of way. I find shooting lingerie and shooting swimmer, you are way better um, showing of some curve. Second is to oil the model up until she drips the oil. <laughs> it sounds sounds very dirty, but basically it's just she has to be she has to be dripping oil and, and that's what it is because the shine never shows on camera as strong as it does in real life. So a lot of the time when I have girls posing, they would literally be dripping wet in oil because that's when the, the, the shine is the nicest and that's when it just goes super well. You recently actually mentioned what you're using for this crazy shine. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so there is a few things. When I was in Cape Town, there was this amazing body spray. It's, I think, from a brand called Ors. It's actually a hairspray for black curly hair. It's made for black women in particular for Afros. And it's a shine spray that helps to keep the curls moisturized because, you know, the hair can be quite coarse. So it just it's just like a shine spray. But it's an amazing spray because... First thing first, it's not too greasy because it's a hairspray. So it's still a bit less oily than traditional, let's say, I don't know, coconut oil or something. Mm -hmm. You don't have to rub it in because it's a spray. So you can just literally spray it on the body and just leave it in. So first, you don't have to touch the model. And second, you can just spray quite a lot of it. Because usually when you ask girls to apply the oil themselves, they will usually apply it and rub it in a bit too much. And then it just kind of dries out and you can't really see it. So ideally, I would just literally spray paint them head to toe and just be like, don't move, just don't rub anything <laughs> and just leave it. So it's usually easier and it's pretty cheap as well. I think one bottle that would last you for maybe, depending how heavy you use it for probably two, three shoots would be like three euro per bottle. It's a euro per bottle or euro per shoot, which is, which is very reasonable. And it doesn't transfer to clothes that much, so it's great. I know what they sell it in America and I've seen it in certain places. I think I actually seen one in Portugal when I was in Algarve, but it was way more expensive and wasn't exactly the same one. I know you can buy it online, so I definitely recommend because it is a really, really good spray. Other than that, I was using a brand. It was a body cream that was produced in Bali. It's a local um, Bali company, and it's a body cream that is made out of oils and some other stuff. I don't know what exactly, but it was a very beautiful body oil or body cream that was super glossy and it was giving beautiful sheen and smelled really nice. But as I said, it's only available in Bali and it's only available in Ubud as well. Mm -hmm. So even when I was in Canggu, which is an hour away, I still couldn't get it. So. <laughs> so that's the main difficulty. You just have to go to Ubud, to Bali and just stock up, just buy 20 
of those and just carry them with you. <laughs> if I really have to, maybe you can persuade me to go to Bali. You know, it's going to be yes. so difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's a great reason. I need to go to Bali <laughs> because I need to buy body cream. Yeah. <laughs> totally legit. In general, definitely don't use cooking oil. You don't want to cook your model. Don't use uh, baby oils because baby oil usually has a lot of harsh chemicals in it. And it did cause, not on my shoots, but I have heard of many models who got chemically burnt because of it, because they were exposed to the sun for too long and it would just burn their skin. You can also use tanning oils and stuff like that. Anything that is oily and shiny, basically. Mm -hmm. Another tip for swimwear is usually girls with a tan work better than pale girls, obviously, because the shine shows off better, the curves show off better, unfortunately. I love shooting swimwear with really dark models or with black models because the skin just looks absolutely insane in direct sunlight. That's another thing. I usually love shooting in direct sunlight with models, but if I shoot swimwear, I would usually go first thing in the morning or later in the afternoon. However, if you want to have the whitest sand and the bluest water, you should shoot around midday because that's when the, the, the light hits kind of straight down on the ground and underwater and it just makes it look the brightest and the most vivid. The only thing is you will get a lot of very harsh light uh, or harsh shadows under the model's eyes and so on. So you have to make sure to either, either get them to look up or maybe use some sort of a reflector or something because it's going to be pretty bright and it's going to be pretty hot. And yeah, I think that's mainly it. Yeah, curvy, oily, and bright. Okay, that's awesome. I really like that you talk so much about traveling. And we all know that there are a lot of expenses when we talk about traveling. So what about this side of the industry? Because you can also help the people that are planning a trip somewhere on how to also plan their finance. A lot of the time when you go abroad, the, the tricky situation is you don't really have clients abroad. So you have to figure out where your stream of finances is going to come from. I am lucky enough to be selling my online product online. I have my presets that I sell and I have released a workshop. It's a digital product. So basically it allows me to make money wherever I go in the world. So it doesn't really matter where I am, which is extremely convenient. But if you don't have that, I'd say it's obviously way more planning. And, you, you know, sometimes it's worth talking to your clients that you have in your country because a lot of the clients want to have shoots abroad. I have a bunch of Irish clients that would I would still work until today that I just bring with me whenever I shoot abroad. They usually shoot twice a year, so I know when the money is going to be coming in. And that kind of helps to plan things. It's also good to just, as I said, maybe do a test or two wherever you go into an industry and then maybe approach different brands in that given country and try and see if you can get work that way. But in general, I am a budget traveler. I don't really stay in expensive places. As I said, when I was in Bali, I would cut my spendings, living, food, transport at, at less than a thousand a month. So it was really convenient. That's why I travel to places like Bali or Cape Town, because the cost of living is relatively inexpensive. That's why I don't really attempt going to America at the moment or any of those bigger cities where the cost of living is way, way higher, because I feel like it would just put too much strain on me and trying to be creative and trying to come up with all the money. So if you do want to travel, I would consider countries in Southeast Asia and those kind of places where you can live a very high standard of life for relatively very little. You can produce really beautiful work for your portfolio that is definitely going to help you down the line with your clients, you know, back at home. 
or if you want to move to a different industry, going to Cape Town or going to Bali or Thailand is so good for your portfolio because you get beautiful models, absolutely beautiful locations. And most of the time you can get them for free. So you can organize really breathtaking, amazing shoots for pretty much nothing, which is basically what you want. And and then once you come back home, your face value goes up so much because you are an international photographer and not just somebody that shoots in your little home city or wherever you are in the world. If you don't know how to have a free location, Anita, by the way, has her video on her YouTube channel guiding you through this process. And Anita, I wanted to ask you, because you've been in so many beautiful places, what is the one location that can come to my mind right away that you can say that you were stunned when you saw it? The contest is definitely between Cape Town and Bali. There is one location in Cape Town that I can think of. In general, the beaches in Cape Town are absolutely breathtaking and you have the ocean and you have the rocks and then you have the mountains behind, which is beautiful. I remember I was shooting for a swimwear brand and I rented this Airbnb that was in this pretty rich part of town. And it was this beautiful house with a swimming pool and a view of the ocean. And then the mountains were just behind. It was the most breathtaking location. And then another one in Bali, it it's called The Alchemist. It's a, it's not a hotel. It's more, it's like a bunch of bungalows, but they're all very rustic looking. They have a very unique style to them. They're all white and kind of brushed and kind of slightly old looking, almost like a Greek vibe going on. But anyway, it's absolutely beautiful. You do have to pay to be to shoot there because there are so many people shooting there throughout the years. But I shot there for a designer and it's absolutely worth it. They don't ask for a lot of money, so it's fine. But it was just one of those places where you go there and there's such an abundance of possible locations for you to shoot at that you're like, oh, this is a location, this is a location, this is a location, this is a location. <laughs> Everything becomes a location. It's just such a pleasurable shoot because whichever way you turn in that location, it's a new exciting thing for you to capture. So I think that that particular place, I think, stands out for me the most because I just remember when I went there, I've gone there, I've shot there two or three times and I stayed there overnight as well. I actually stayed there when Irene Rudna came to visit me in Bali. We stayed there when we were in, in Uluwatu. And it was just, yeah, there's so many good memories there. And it's just such a beautiful location. If you go to a brand new city today, what would you prefer to go on location or to be safe with a studio? Definitely location. I've always been a location person. I've always been a natural light person. I love exploring new cities. It's definitely more stressful and you have to plan way better. I feel like whatever I go to a new city, I've learned that preparing for a shoot in terms of location scouting is absolute key when you work outside. I've given myself the disadvantage of not being well prepared so many times when I was younger and it was a very stupid mistake. And I feel now when I do shoots, especially as I said, because they are free shoots and because I put so much time and effort and sometimes money into it. I make sure that whenever I organize a shoot, I organize way less shoots, but I'm way more prepared. So even when I was in Berlin, I was doing a shoot where I wanted to do graffiti. And there was a few locations that I scouted beforehand and I really liked. But the first two locations were lacking. And because of that, I was kind of unhappy with how the final look of that actual photo turned out. But then when I went into the three locations that I really loved, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I was so inspired. So I just see how important it is to do proper location scouting 
usually what I do is I just go and maybe a few days earlier or a day earlier if I don't have time, I would walk around the city, take photos on my phone so I have a good visual in front of me and I can plan accordingly. A lot of the time if I work for my clients, for example, if I have a lookbook to shoot and I know I have maybe eight or nine looks, I will take photos of possible location then put it out maybe on my computer or whatever and just try and match the outfits with the actual looks. And it helps so much. It speeds up the process on the day a lot because you just figure out the plan of action and you figure out which way is best to get from A to B. Usually you have to walk a certain way because you don't want to end up traveling from location to location if they're far away. There needs to be some sort of a plan where you move from location A to location B to location C and it's kind of convenient on the way. And then once you have that figured out and you know which clothes you want to you know, wear next, it makes it so much easier because usually when you work on location, you usually don't have a changing room. You can buy those tents that, that are changing rooms, but usually I'm so limited with my luggage that when I travel, I don't usually have them. So we usually either have to get the girl into a gate somewhere to change and just cover her with clothing or just get her into a restaurant. So it always takes time. Usually the majority of the shoots that I do abroad for my clients, I would have to care about the clothes myself because I don't have a stylist with me, which means I have to have some certain order in the suitcase where I know that this look that is on top of the suitcase is going to be next and not the one at the very bottom. So I have to make sure it. I think it's just the more prepared you are and the more location scouting you do. First, you give yourself more options of, of shots. And second, you just make your life so much easier on the day. And I think that's the key. Would you advise someone to start a photography business or maybe even a YouTube channel today? Yes, for sure. I mean, I feel like if you are passionate about anything, whatever it is, regardless, um, I think you should go for it. But I think like with anything else, you have to be prepared that it's going to be a lot of hard work and it's going to be a very long time before you see a paycheck. And it's not something that just happens overnight. And I feel a lot of people get very discouraged when they do a few shoots there in the industry for a few months and they are not the next Annie Leibovitz. And unfortunately, it's just one of those things that takes a lot of time and effort. A lot of the time, for a very long time, you are going to do your own thing and the only person that is going to care about it is you. True. And as I said, you are going to get rejected a lot and people won't want to work with you. And to be honest, even nowadays, as I said, with so many years experience and so many shoots behind my belt, there's still so many people that say no to me. And there's so many models and so many stylists that just don't want to work with me. And it's fine. I accept it as a part of them just not feeling my vibe. And that's totally fine. I have people contacting me every day that I don't feel their vibe either. And I say no as well. So it's it's just something that you just have to realize that in a such a saturated market, it does take time and effort. And you really do have to have something special. Or maybe you don't have to have something special about you, but you just have to know how to market yourself properly to succeed. We know now after this awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Guys, do you know what this is? That's right. It's a wrap. It was the second part of our interview with Anita and it was absolutely mind-blowing, but it's over. So next Wednesday, we'll be here with another guest. And if in the meantime you miss Anita, all you can do is to follow her YouTube and Instagram account. They're both linked on photographypodcast.net. And there is also a surprise. 
between the moment we recorded this episode and the day we released it, aka today, Anita published a whole course on studio lighting. So if you want to check it out, it's also linked in the show notes on photographypodcast.net. And if you want to keep up with the news, follow us on Instagram. Our handle is photography underscore podcast. If you're a really big fan of the show and you want to help us somehow, all you have to do is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us an honest review. Thank you in advance, guys. And also, thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. And I cannot wait to see you next Wednesday. <laughs>